Thank you for downloading the Wings Museum podcast. In this edition, we take a short trip from the museum up the M23 to join the Kenley Revival Team for the first part of a guided walk around RAF Kenley, entitled Voices from the Past. My name's Linda Duffield. I'm Legacy Officer for the Kenley Revival Project and welcome along this evening. We're just going to be looking at quotations from memoirs and biographies, autobiographies from the service personnel that served here during World War II. Kenley has been an RAF station now for 102 years and it is still an active airfield, which is why we have the fence there. When the gates are open, you can go through and walk at your leisure, at your own risk. It's still an emergency landing ground, but at your own risk you can walk across. When the gates are closed, that means there are gliding operations in progress and you should stay off. Obviously, the most famous part of Kenley's history is the Battle of Britain, the part it played in the Battle of Britain as a sector station in 11 Group Fighter Command. In the run-up to the outbreak of hostilities... Things were in a pretty dire position here. We had Philippe Joubert, who was the head of fighting area before fighter command was even invented, and he was based here. They used to do exercises up here in like the mid-30s where they'd try and do kind of command and control exercises from here via Uxbridge and get it, seeing if they could get fighters in the air and what have you. They didn't even have their own dedicated phone system. So they would have some little old lady on a switchboard somewhere along the route, and if she pulled the plug, the whole of fighter command went down. (laughs) And obviously this was absolutely insupportable. So eventually they got a grant from the government to have their own dedicated phone system, and thank goodness for Lord Dowding, by the time we get to the outbreak of hostilities, we have well-trained pilots, modern aircraft, just about our airfields are ready... Tactically, we're pretty woeful, let's be honest. The Luftwaffe had been practising on the front line of the Spanish Civil War before they got here, and they'd already sort of had operations through Poland, France, Belgium and everywhere else. We were pretty raw and our tactics were outdated, but obviously they made a sterling effort and we had, you know, because we had the command and control and the other things in place, we did pretty well out of it with a bit of luck. The first quote I'm going to read you is from Philippe Joubert, and he says, It must be realised that the Air Force that won the Battle of Britain was originally trained on biplanes. It thought 240 miles an hour rather fast, and a climb to 10,000 feet in seven minutes, quite a good performance. So... You've got to think, all this technology that is coming in, radar, monoplane fighters and all that, it's incredibly new. It's at the cutting edge of what's going on. It hasn't been tried and tested. Nobody really knows how it's all going to work. It just hangs together. And the Battle of Britain is the first major conflict that is fought almost entirely in the air. It was all new. It was a, it was a new thing. The other guy I'm going to read to you from here is a ground crew from 615 Squadron who was here during the Battle of Britain. His name is actually Frank Hunt, but in the true tradition of military humour, they christened him Mike, and that is the, the name that he has always been known to history as. 
My own recollection of that time was of an overwhelming sense of comradeship amongst all personnel involved, including all the pilots, ground crews and ancillary staff with whom we worked. It was a period of hard work and long hours for we service personnel and for our pilots, many of whom we had become friends with. It was to be a most daunting challenge. We were to witness the transformation of carefree youths into serious adults who were ready to kill or be killed. The period had been called and truly was a summer for heroes. So those are those two gentlemen. Mm. Philippe Joubert, he commentated for the BBC during the war years and um, he'd come from the army. He was really old school. He'd fought in the Great War and all the rest of it. Okay, shall we move on around to the... We'll go that way. We'll go that away. We'll, we'll cut across the... <laughs> This is a nice breeze now. It is lovely, isn't it? Just, I love this time of the evening. Just hoping we can get round before it gets dark. <laughs> That's my only thing. I just want to get get back to base before we end up really stabbling around. Okay, here we are. We're, we're in one of Kenley's blast pens. We've just come from the one by the Tribute. The blast pens, the Perry and quite a lot of installations for storing ammunition, fuel, oil and so on and so forth were put in literally in the last few months before the breakout of hostilities. The airfield was closed and all this concrete runways and everything were put in at the express orders of Lord Dowding. Kenley had been out of action in a couple of winters prior to the outbreak of war and Dowding realised that Kenley was of such strategic importance that that would not be able to be allowed to happen. So he ordered that the runways were concreted, that the perry was put in and that 12 blast pens were put up around the edge. Obviously the idea of a blast pen is that you disperse your aircraft around the airfield rather than keeping them all in a hangar where one hit will finish the whole squadron. If you disperse them around, it's less chance of them being hit, and the earth revetments will protect them from blasts coming from the side. Some of them still have their central spine walls, which protect the aircraft. If one is hit, then the, it won't start a chain reaction onto the other one. You've seen they all had the shelters across the back there, which were used by ground crew for storage, and, and they used to sleep in them overnight during raids and so on. There were also several dispersal huts around each blast pen where they would keep flying kit and rest and recuperate. I sort of wanted to talk here about the hardest day. We had the commemorations on the 18th of August this year, and I expect some of you were up here for the fly-past. Um, yeah, it was lovely, wasn't it? That, also known as the Sunday lunchtime raid, came after a sort of period of ominous quiet while the Luftwaffe kind of figured out what to do after Eagle Day, after Aldertag had, had failed. They weren't really sure what they were going to do. So they launched this massive attack on the 18th of August. Three major assaults and lots of smaller actions. It's called the hardest day because the most aircraft were damaged that day. It's not the most personnel lost. People are arguing about whether it's the hardest day or not to this day. But about 100 German aircraft were lost and about 136 British aircraft were lost. So it was a day of great losses all round. The guy in charge here was Wing Commander Thomas Prickman. 
38 years old. He had 64 squadron and 615 squadron under his command, 12 Spitfires, 22 Hurricanes, 600 airmen, 100 airwomen, 100 AA gunners and infantrymen, and 30 officers. So this is something that I always have trouble getting over to people, is how busy Kenley was. There were a lot of people up here. It was a very busy station. There was activity, people, aircraft, everything coming and going. And especially that day, they had to do a survival scramble to get everything in the air. Our squadrons were scrambled to the south. 164 were patrolling high overhead. And they were too high to intercept the raid by the 9th Staffel. Camp Geschweder 76, which came in very, very low from the south. Being the Luftwaffe, they had quite a lot of war reporters and photographers on board their aircraft for this assault to witness the great victory of the Luftwaffe. And um, one of them was a guy called Rolf von Pebble, who took these amazing pictures of that raid. And he actually, we have a written account from him detailing what he saw as he came, as he came in. And this is, this is this raid coming in. He said, we cross the coast and descend low over the channel and keep watch for fighters. Haze lies over the water. Droplets stream from the cockpit windows. Soon the quiet will end. We see the coast shimmering through the fog. Ascend a few metres higher and then the English coast becomes clearly visible and very close. I photograph what I can. 600 metres to the left are two early warning boats which we leave alone. They signal us and when we don't reply we assume they're sending a radio report notifying their flak batteries of uninvited guests. We are already over steep cliffs. Now it can begin. That is the approach to Kenley. And there's a lot of witnesses down there on the coast that watch this raid come in very, very low. This is Margaret Birch. She said, we just stood and looked down on the... She's looking down on them, they're so low. We stood and looked down on the pencil-like planes creeping along the South Downs, with the South Downs as a backdrop. They were in sight for about a minute. No markings were visible, but there was something sinister in both their appearance and behaviour. And I think this is the, the quote that I've got from probably about the most famous person. This is Virginia Woolf, an extract from her diary from the 19th of August. And she says, Monday, 19th of August, 1940. Yesterday, 18th, there was a roar. Right on top of us they came. I looked at the plane like a minnow at a roaring shark. Over they flashed, three, I think, olive green. Then pop, 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 German. Again, pop, pop, pop over Kingston. Said to be five bombers hedgehopping on their way to London. The closest shave so far. And in fact, they were machine gunning the high streets and everything as they came up following the railway line to Kenley. So how many German aircraft were in... Only nine. Nine? Only nine. And that, they, the thing is, there was supposed to be a raid coming in, a large raid, a high-altitude raid coming in, that was going to flatten the airfield before they even got there but because of a haze over France they had a job assembling 
their formations and everything, and they were de delayed only by about five minutes. But it gave a chance that the, the ninth staffel got over the channel before them. They were expecting to come up over the hangars there and find Kenley in flames already. And in fact, they found the airfield completely intact and all guns trained in their direction because the K3 observer station down at Beachy Head, the Royal Observer, well, they weren't the Royal Observer, the Observer Corps had already alerted Fighter Command that they were on their way. So and the, they, there were just nine bombers? There were just nine, nine. for that raid. Five but minutes bombers. after they came over... There were no fighters? They were yeah, they, they, they didn't have a fighter escort, I don't think. The larger raids that came after did. I may be wrong about that, but I think the larger raids that came after did, but the, the ninth staffel came on their own. They, okay. were, they were a crack, low-level bomber squadron. from somewhere in France, yes. didn't they? Cormé-en-Vichon, yeah, just north of Paris. So the main target was Kenley. It for wasn't. This, for this it wasn't raid. London. No, not no. For, no. They, they, wanted, Kenley, they were. They Kenley were trying to knock out Fighter Command. Yeah. They okay. they were targeting the the sector stations, Biggin Hill, Kenley, Hornchurch, Northweald. They thought Ford and Thorny Island were were RAF fighter stations, but they only had very high-level reconnaissance photos to go from. Mm -hmm. So they'd seen single-engine aircraft on the tarmac at Ford and Thorny Island and thought they were fighter stations. They weren't. And they also went for the radar station at Polling. So, okay. um, yeah, that was, yep. that was what they were after. Yeah. Should we, should we move on? Can mm -hmm. I just point yes. out this road was closed during yes, that time because there's pens indeed. on the other side. There are, yes, there yeah. are indeed, sir. They're, 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 they're on private land now, but one of them still has its spine wall and I think it's pretty intact. Mm -hmm. okay. So, yes, they are, there are still pens on the other side of, of Hayes Lane and Hayes Lane certainly was shut for the duration of hostilities. I was uh, around here at that time. Yes, mm. yeah, well, you can tell us then. You can, you can, <laughs> you can do us. So you remember it all then? Oh yes, I remember it all. We're going to go round the back here and go and sit in front of the... the um... So presumably you were quite a young man at the, during yeah, the war. Yes, well actually my cousin who was 15 years older than me by the name of William Hatley was actually here on that very day. All right. Yes, and uh, he was sent to the Far East... <laughs> And after that time, mm. he was in the Royal Air Force, uh, ground crew. And um, my father was also in the Royal Air Force for the whole of the war. And believe it or not, when I was 18, I was called up under the National Service. Yeah. And I served a bit longer than that. And I was also posted to the Malayan emergency, right. as it was called. Mm. Yes, it was called an emergency because, um, rather than a war against the Chinese communists, because the insurances on our property there would be invalid. Right. <laughs> but we got a campaign medal. Wants to come along a little bit, come, come round and, and, and spread out and what have you. This is our rifle range. It was absolutely vital. Shooting, obviously, is, is a vital skill in wartime. And this is a small arms, 50-yard range. It would have had the targets where you can see the lump in the ground. And there was obviously sand all along there to catch anything that went astray. There were still bullets lodged in the wall up there. And I think generations of school children around here have delighted in sifting through the sand there. Certainly my son has had a, a good time, but be very careful. Whatever you find in the ground here could well be live. So, um, yeah, watch yourselves. 
Churchill said in June 1940, every man in RAF uniform ought to be armed with something. A rifle, a tommy gun, a pistol, a pike or mace. It must be understood by all ranks that they are expected to fight and die in defence of their airfields. So you can see this idea of shooting was, was considered vital by that point. However, air gunnery was something that the, the RAF hadn't really trained for in the 30s. They didn't really put a great deal of importance by that. They were all thinking more about formation flying and, and beautiful aerobatics and the air pageants at Hendon and having their wives and girlfriends down at the weekend and everything. It was, you know, they used to say it was the greatest flying club in the world. And so you get this extraordinary situation where we, where we get to wartime and the pilots are going into battle having never fired their guns and really not having much of a clue about deflection shooting and all of this kind of stuff which became vital later on. This is John Alexander Johnny Ken, DFC, AFC, Virtuti Militari. He was the guy who led 303 Squadron very famously from Northolt, and he also served at Kenley. Many of the new boys never fired their guns at all until they went into action for the first time, a sobering thought when one considers the task before them. It was a great tribute to their grit and determination that they carried themselves into the violent battles of the next few months and inflicted the damage they did with virtually no practice on air firing at all. One wonders what the results might have been if it had been possible to thoroughly train every pilot before he went into action. So, yeah, and he'd never flown a hurricane before and he had to fight to get a few rounds of ammunition in his gun so that he could just go and try it out. Because he said, oh, I've, never, I've never fired a wing-mounted gun before. And they were all like, are you crazy, wanting to go off and practice that? Anyway, normally here I talk about people who are great shots and, you know, who have a wonderful ability with air-to-air -air firing or our aces and what have you. Today I'm going to talk about someone who really wasn't much of a shot at all, to be fair to him, which is Bacciacci. He served here in the 30s and he came back again as station commander during the war years in 1942. And he was an outstanding pilot. He had broken the airspeed record in the Schneider Trophy races of 1929. He was part of the RAF's high-speed flight. He was an absolute natural from the day he got into a cockpit. He was one of twins. His brother David was also a pilot. And Dowding met them when they were 10 years old and met them later as they came through Cranwell and what have you. And Dowding said on the Achilles, he said, I regarded them as eccentric geniuses and I was always glad to have either or both of them under my command, which is pretty good going. However... Batchy's a really great pilot, right? He's a fantastic pilot. He comes here as station commander and he had his own personal Spitfire, but he wasn't au fait with them. He hadn't had a lot of hours on Spitfires. His days were the biplane days. And he had absolutely no experience of air-to-air -air firing at all. However, he did decide he was going to have a go on his own. Owen Hardy of 72 Squadron says, On the particular day we were turning from the sweep in which Kenley Wing also took part, Batchy decided he would take on the Luftwaffe all on his own with a little bit of help from the operations controller at Kenley. 
And he says, Batty was a wonderful pilot, but clearly the game he was now playing was out of his league in both age and experience. This is Batty Atchley's own account of what happened on the 26th of May 1942, when he went out on his own and decided he was going to have a pop at the Luftwaffe. I was just starting to orbit to the right when I caught sight of a Fokker Wolf 190 right behind me and two others a bit further back and above. I was too late. I started an immediate turn in the opposite direction but was cold meat. I heard his cannon strikes and saw my dashboard splinter. For an unconscionable number of seconds I seemed to be receiving the full blast of four cannons. I saw everything and heard everything but in the excitement of the moment felt nothing although in fact I was hit down my throttle arm by an explosive shell. The armour plate behind my seat made a noise like a drum but gave me full protection. The engine packed up. The cockpit started to smoke and I soon had no control with my elevators. My wheels dropped as my hydraulics packed up and the aircraft turned into a right-hand spin. I realised I'd have to bail out and tried to send a mayday call, but not surprisingly, my radio was hit. I slid back the canopy, unstrapped myself and tried to raise my trunk to get my head and shoulders out into the slipstream. To my concern, I was held a few inches from my seat by some unseen obstruction. I tried repeatedly, but of no avail, and I forlornly came to the inevitable conclusion that I was for it. So he managed to free himself from the cockpit and got kind of blown out and found himself sitting on the wing, rather extraordinary, and then was thrown backwards and collided with the tailplane. He managed to escape, came down on his parachute into the channel, and he was rescued. Pieces of shell had torn through his shoulder, down his left arm, and ripped the flesh from a finger. He was treated at Dover Hospital and then he underwent surgery at East Grinstead. Years later, through a conversation with uh, WGG Duncan Smith, another aspect of the story came to light, involving David, his twin brother. He said, A strange thing happened that day. At the precise moment when I was hit in the arm, my brother David, who was sitting in his office at Fairwood Common, shouted to his adjutant to get through to fighter command and ask the duty controller in the operations room whether I was OK. He was told that as far as was known, I was in the pink at Kenley, minding my own business. Find out for sure, my brother insisted. I think Group Captain Ashley has had a serious accident and hurt his arm rather badly. Twenty minutes later, the sector controller at Kenley telephoned David and told him I was overdue, missing from a reconnaissance flight over the channel. So, another little weird twin moment. David was killed flying a jet in the 50s. Richard Batchy, actually, survived the war and died age 66 in Aldershot. Shall we move on? <clears throat> A great friend of mine, Julian Alderton, who flew with Hornets in LA, a dive bombing, and said the great delight in them, he loved them, was the fact that the propellers on the Mosquito are both rotated in the same direction, mm. which would give them such bad torque steer, and the thrust on the rudder, whereas the Hornet were controvertating with respect to each other. Right. Loved it. Yeah, yeah. And one day they were told they were all to be scrapped, because the humidity had... Destroyed the adhesive. Right. So they're all put on the scrap dump to be burnt. Yeah. He climbed over, cut the number out of his, and it's in his study to this day. Excellent. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. What a wonderful evening this is as well. Well, it's nice to see so many people coming to hear these stories again, isn't it? It is, yes. My parents, Dad was a parish priest, 
He was in the Docklands in the Battle of Britain. Yeah. Mum was in a reserved occupation, but she was a, a Red Cross nurse in the evenings. And she tells so many tales from a girl of 17 or 18, really. Mm. People lying up waiting to be treated. But a particular lady who said, I'll wait my turn, dear, who'd actually had her legs blown off. Oh, and who, who died. Yeah, yeah. And Uncle was in the AFS, an auxiliary fire service firefighter, so... Would have been kept busy. <laughs> Very close to home, yes. Yes. And here we are today, aren't we lucky? Yes. <laughs> Well, one of the best things about Kennedy is the fact that it's still here full stop, really. It hasn't been encroached upon in the way that uh, many other places have. No, it's, it's extraordinary. It's sad that there are a few peripheral things that aren't properly preserved, but the, the ambience of the place is really, isn't it? Yes, exactly. It's wonderful. Well, friend, I've got the book The Hardest Day, which is really good, mm. and so has a friend. But one day we were in a second-hand bookshop in Horsham, and he picked up a copy of it, which was an earlier edition. To cut a very, very long story short, opened it up, and there was an autograph on a visiting card from a pub in Sussex that we, through checking out on the internet, was Douglas Barders. Wow. <laughs> Absolutely. And the person in the bookshop hadn't thought of looking? It was a charity shop. Wow. It was literally a pile of old books. Wonderful find. That is a good find. So treasured, it's gone to a good home. Inspiration to us all, yeah. <laughs> okay, folks, obviously, this is the business end of the airfield. All the buildings were up this end, and the hangars would have been just over here behind you there. They'd been here since 1917 when the airfield first started. I think three hangars were removed just before the outbreak of, of war because they were surplus to requirement leaving three in an empty shed during wartime. On the 18th of August, two of those hangars were destroyed, leaving only one. They didn't have many aircraft in them. They, everything carried on as normal because, obviously, the aircraft were in the air or dispersed around the airfield. So, although we did lose a few hurricanes on the ground, not that much fundamental damage was caused by the hangars going. However, obviously, it was pretty horrendous. Nine people were killed here. You know, that sounds appalling to us now. However, down at Ford on the same day, on the 18th of August, they lost 25 because they were taken by surprise and 75 injured. So, although it sounds dreadful to lose... The official statistics is nine. I think there were 11. One died quite a bit later, and there was an army guy as well who, who doesn't really get counted because he wasn't RAF, weirdly, but hey. Um, and they always kind of... They seem to forget him. But anyway, this is a fictional thing. There's a thriller writer called Hammond Innes. I don't know whether any of you ever heard of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He served as an anti-aircraft gunner here and wrote a book called Attack Alarm after the war ended, and... There's, in his accounts of the raids, it's quite obvious, if you're familiar with the 18th of August raid, that what he is describing is the hardest day here. So this isn't a witness account as such. It's a piece from a thriller. However, I would argue that the only thing that makes this possible is the fact that this guy was actually here firing the guns on the 18th of August. He says... 
The chaos of the square was indescribable. It was bounded on three sides by blazing buildings. They dropped incendiaries as well as high explosives. The firefighting equipment was quite inadequate for the task. The smoke was blinding. It filled my eyes to choking point and made them run. Men and girls were running everywhere. Some were screaming. The place reeked with pain and nervous exhaustion. I passed a dugout shelter which had been hit. They were getting the dead and wounded out. I felt slightly sick and was convinced I could smell blood. There was broken glass everywhere and my back tie, he's riding a bicycle, was soon flat. Ambulance and ARP fire pumps were beginning to come in from districts around. I reached the educational without being knocked down. There was nothing left of it. The station hospital had been hit too. It was just a pile of rubble with one wall standing and the front door upright in solitary splendour. A girl in a torn WAF uniform staggered through the ruins and came out by the front door. She closed it carefully behind her. Her face and hair were coated with a thick dust of powdered masonry and her hands were bleeding. Now, the hospital block was sort of in this area over here and was hit on the hardest day. There was a crescent-shaped air raid shelter just outside it and the impact of the bombs made both ends of that shelter collapse. The people who were in the centre of it survived and were dug out, but the people on the ends were killed, including the station doctor, Dr Robert Cromie, who was an Irishman and had been the local GP before the war. He was very much loved. I'll show you a picture of him in a second. This is another little piece from, from that incident from a WAF called Lilius Barr, who wrote down her memories. Someone called out that the sick quarters had had a direct hit, so I sped in that direction. I remember running over the hummocky grass. There were lots of people badly shaken sitting about. The doctor had been killed, and Mary Coulthard, one of two WAF sick bay attendants, was badly injured. She had the most enormous cut on her thigh. I had never seen anything like it. She had been thrown onto a steel helmet, which had sliced through her leg. She and the other attendant were smiling, though, because they had applied a tourniquet which had worked. And I smiled too, I who under normal circumstances could faint at the sight of someone's cut finger. We tied a label onto her before she was taken to hospital. So, yeah, pretty bad times. Let's move on. Many thanks to Linda and the Kenley Revival team, as well as the other people on the tour who generously shared their own stories. Part two of the RAF Kenley Voices from the Past Walk will follow in the next edition of the Wings Museum podcast. Remember to subscribe to the feed to make sure that you don't miss it. For more information, visit www.wingsmuseum.co.uk.